Hey everybody, this is episode six of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is Chris McClung joining you for this intro to talk about the guest we'll have on today's show, Shanna Burnett, Kara Goucher's agent, will be joining me for this interview and we'll be talking to John Coyles from Major League Baseball. He is actually the Vice President of Drug Health and Safety Programs at Major League Baseball to talk about what Major League Baseball is doing to create a culture of clean sport in that sport. Many of you will remember the mid-2000s when the steroid era perhaps was at its peak in Major League Baseball and there was the Balco investigation that unveiled a dark side of that sport with steroids and other performance-enhancing drugs rampant in that sport to get the home run, home run numbers that we were seeing at the time. And after that, you had the Mitchell, Mitchell Report in 2007, which was an independent re- report from Congress to detail the issues within Major League Baseball, and that created a set of tasks for Major League Baseball to perform in order to clean up the sport. Well, John actually became the one in charge of doing that, and in this interview details everything that Major League Baseball is now doing to promote clean sport within Major League Baseball. And I must say, it's an encouraging, encouraging set of activities and culture that they have now created in Major League Baseball. When we interviewed our first guest, Travis Tigert from the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, he mentioned that of the major sports in the U.S. that Major League Baseball had a really robust system in place to clean up the sport and from a testing standpoint is doing everything the right way to try to root out doping in that sport. I was surprised to hear that when I talked to Travis and then we got the full details from John in this interview so I think you'll also be pleasantly surprised of the depth of work that they've done to clean up that sport to give you confidence that what you're seeing on the field in baseball is the real deal. So we'll jump into this interview with John and Shanna will join me as well. So here we go. Welcome John Coyles to the Clean Sport Collective podcast. How are you doing today, John? Doing great, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining. I wanted to start by asking a fairly simple question, but I know it's a little bit of a mouthful. What's your official title with Major League Baseball? I am the Vice President of Drug Health and Safety Programs with MLB. Okay, awesome. That is absolutely a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) And tell us how you got to that place. I've been with the company for going on 12 years now. Um, I am a lawyer by trade. Um, Coming out of law school, um, I gave a shot at working in a traditional law firm type setting and it wasn't really for me. So I moved on to New York City in hopes of finding an alternative uh, situation. I was lucky enough pretty soon after moving down that I was able to work for the Office of the Commissioner on a project basis, which was specific uh, to the investigation into performance enhancing drugs in baseball. It was an independent investigation conducted by former Senator George Mitchell. Uh, so for a couple of months, I, I, I worked really hard uh, for not a lot of pay, um, being involved in that and, and working for the Labor Relations Department. Um, at the tail end of that project, um, there wasn't a possibility of being hired, but fortunately, and uh, I guess the stars and moons were aligned in my favor, 
Um, about six months after leaving, I was called back and said, if I could be at, back at MLB by noon with a suit and tie on, I'll get an opportunity for an interview for a full-time job. So I uh, ran over, got uh, cleaned up, went to the interview, and uh, that was uh, that was 12 years ago. I'm still here. So uh, it was, uh, you know, pro sports is something that was always kind of a dream, but I didn't know if it was a possibility. Uh, but, you know, I know, one, that I'm very fortunate, so I, I make sure to continue to work hard and, 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 and not get fired. Uh, but, but also it's one where it does show that, um, you know, if, if, if you're lucky, um, if you work hard and, and if you're in the right place at the right time, you know, you can break into the professional sports world, even if you're pretty early on in your career. You're a lawyer by training. What did you do before you got involved with the Mitchell Report? Uh, I was in law school. So it's really, I mean, this was pretty much my first wow. job, I'm saying, where I was pretty lucky. So, um, you know, I did, uh, I always had a passion for labor relations. Um, you know, that is, um, you know, just an area of the law where, as opposed to focusing on litigation, um, you're, you're focusing on trying to reach deals, reach agreements, and uh, as opposed to going through kind of the traditional courtroom litigation experience, um, when there is disputes, you go through arbitration. Um, that applies really well in the professional sports world, you know, in baseball, but in all professional sports in the U.S., the athletes are represented by a union. Um, and if we're going to be making any changes, whether it's, um, you know, something on the anti-doping policies in baseball or any rule uh, that could potentially impact players on the field, we have an obligation under U.S. federal law to uh, make proposals negotiate with the players union and ultimately reach agreement. So what that comes down to is unlike some of the other sports settings, if we want to make a change, even if it's for the right reasons, we cannot do that unilaterally unless we have our athletes on board with it. So when you started, talk a little bit about the environment within major league baseball, at least at the administrative level, because the Mitchell report came on the back of the Balco scandal, which unveiled basically the, the, the dark, underbelly of steroids in baseball and you became then involved right at that point essentially so on the backs of that quote-unquote scandal what was the environment like in major league baseball well i think um you know I, I was coming in right around the time when that investigation was finishing up but prior to that i think what you read in the media was pretty accurate where um there was some issues um change needed to occur but before we started deciding or or thinking through what needed to occur, we needed to really have a handle on how big of the issue was. So, you know, we went to Senator Mitchell, um, asked him to conduct his investigation. He was able to do that in an independent way. Um, and then upon completion of that investigation, he released a report which became public. And the most important part of that report was a number of recommendations that were being provided by him to help, you know, essentially clean up the game. And uh, we worked very hard uh, upon receipt of those recommendations to reach an agreement with the players union. They were absolutely on board with them and, and we reached those agreements pretty quickly. Um, and those, even though that was, you know, over a decade ago, all of those recommendations from Mitchell are still in place today. Um, and then, you know, ever since then, we've taken a look at our programs, our policies on an annual basis, um, and we continue to update them at that rate. Um, you know, one of the primary recommendations from from Mitchell in his report was that in order to have a successful anti-doping program, it has to be transparent, independent, and flexible. Um, so the uh, taking them in reverse order, um, when you're talking about flexibility, um, you know the issue of performance-enhancing drugs is always changing, um, always updating, 
And so we can't have a policy that's in place for, for five years or so, like some of our other collective bargaining agreements. We need to be in front of the science. We need to be making updates at least on an annual basis. And, and we've done that uh, from an independent perspective. Um, while I am, you know, my the main focus of my job is on our anti-doping programs on a daily basis. And I have um, a staff of great people, consultants and employees that, that assist me. Um, and the players union, there's also counterparts on their end that, that have similar roles. Um, we do have an independent administrator. Um, he actually used to run the Department of Defense's drug testing program for, for military service members. Um, and he is essentially the only person that knows when and where a drug test is going to occur. So while we were highly involved and hands-on with the implementation of our policy and running our policy, uh, from the administration of our policy, it's really important that neither of the parties, MLB or the Players Union, know when the testing is going to occur and things like that. And then from a transparency perspective, I'm a big advocate of that. I think it's very important. Um, you know, we make our policies public. Um, we uh, announce everything uh, when we make updates. I mean, there's really, there's no skeletons in the closet. There's nothing brushed underneath the rug. Um, and everything that, that goes on in our policy is, is very transparent. And um, if you're interested in knowing, you can essentially, you know, read about it in, in publicly available documents. So, um, you know, all of those things, that's kind of the, the pillars of our policies. And like I said, they've been in place for, for over a decade now, and uh, we're very proud of them. Uh, but, you know, we know that we can continue to get better. And, um, you know, we're continuing to put in the effort and the time to, to continue to stay in front of the curve and, and try to make them as strong as possible. So tell us a little bit more about those protocols that are in place in terms of you talked about randomized drug testing. I was talking, we were talking with Michael Permoto recently, who talked about you having an independent investigative unit also to find people outside of testing pro, pro, protocols. So what are the other components in addition to the randomized and, and uh, non-announced testing? Sure. Yeah. Um, very, very good point and important point and something that, frankly, I think we're that may be the most uh, aspect of our policies that we're the most proud of. Um, you know, we have a really strong drug testing program. Um, we conduct a high frequency of testing that is also all publicly available. You can take a look at our annual report each December. Um, you know, we use the best labs in the world. We use a great uh, collection agent, multiple collection agents to collect the samples for us. Uh, we have wonderful consultants that help advise us on everything from science and, um, and, and deterrence and things like that. Uh, but we learned, you know, through the Mitchell investigation and a couple of examples since then, that no matter how good the science is, no matter how much money you invest in entities like the Partnership for Clean Competition to try to move the needle forward from a, from a pure analytical perspective, these drugs are really difficult to detect, and in some of the, you know, whether it's scientists, chemists, um, anti-aging clinics, whatever the case may be, that are advising athletes, they may be one step in front of the science. And so in order to have a uh, strong and effective anti-doping program, you also have to have the ability to investigate things on what we call a non-analytical basis, which essentially is a violation of our rules or evidence of performance-enhancing substance use without um, a positive test result. Um, and so, you know, through the Mitchell investigation, going back to that, I mean, that was essentially a non-analytical investigation because he wasn't relying on positive test results for the most part. He was looking at other evidence like receipts, checks, uh, 
mailing uh, receipts, uh, uh, findings from interviews, things like that. Um, and while our testing program, I feel, has been very effective um, over the last 10 to 12 years, um, and we've continued to make improvements to try to make it as strong as possible, um, you know, we have needed an investigative unit, and we have, you know, what I feel is the gold standard investigative unit in anti-doping. Um, you know, we were essentially, I, you know, one of the first, if not the first entities to, to have put that unit in place. Um, we've been very collaborative with other anti-doping entities like WADA and USADA and the other pro leagues in the U.S. to try to explain to them how we put our unit in place. Uh, we work very closely with them. It's important that science and legal work with investigations, and, and we frankly work hand-in-hand -hand with them on a lot of anti-doping matters. Uh, but there was, we're just a couple of years removed um, from one of the more challenging times in Major League Baseball's history, and that was our investigation into the Biogenesis Clinic in Miami, Florida, where ultimately after conducting almost a year's worth of interviews and investigation, we were put in a position of having to discipline over a dozen players for non-analytical violations of our policies. Um, they were all affiliated with or working with a, uh, an individual that was connected to a clinic called Biogenesis. Um, and we were fortunate that the evidence was so strong that only um, of all those players that ultimately were found in violation of our policies, only one of them ultimately challenged it or appealed. Uh, that single player was Alex Rodriguez, and that whole uh, arbitration hearing got a lot of fanfare and media coverage. But ultimately, we were successful in that hearing. Uh, we would not have been successful in that hearing if it hadn't been for our investigations unit. And it's just a, it's a perfect example of no matter how much time, energy, and money you put into testing, if you really want to run an effective program, you have to have the ability to investigate and, and do things kind of in alternative ways. One follow-up there, then I want to bring Shanna in to talk about the PCC. When you say investigative unit, what does that mean to the extent that you can share? I mean, what kind of resources are involved with that? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, they are um, the, the individuals in charge of that um, uh, department. Um, you know, we refer to it as DOI or Department of Investigations inside our office. Um, two former prosecutors, um, you know, that uh, were involved in um, kind of the more traditional um, legal setting prior to coming into baseball. Um, high caliber, highly ethical individuals who help run that department. Um, the, the, the senior vice president in charge is an individual by the name of Brian Seeley. And the vice president who oversees the specific investigative unit is a uh, lawyer by the name of Maura Weinberg. Um, just like I said, just can't say enough good things about them. Very intelligent, very hardworking. But underneath them, they have a staff of individuals uh, that are kind of split down the middle. Um, they have their investigators, who a lot of them are former law enforcement, whether it's former DEA or, or uh, you know, more traditional police, uh, police officer in and around the New York City area. Um, that have specific expertise with respect to, to drugs, street drugs, drug distribution, things like that. Um, and then beyond that, it's also very important that they have other lawyers to, to make sure that they're um, conducting investigations in the right way, but also having intelligence type analysts, not unlike um, entities like the FBI, um, where if you get evidence, um, you have to be able to figure out whether you can use it and, and how it can be best used. So um, you know, that department as a whole, they do travel a lot and conduct a lot of interviews uh, with players, people connected to players, family members, things like that. 
but they also spend a lot of time online, um, you know, looking at social media, looking at other publicly available information. Um, you know, a lot of times it's a kind of a connect the dot type process where you have some evidence or you have some some information and you have to be able to spend some time, gather as much evidence as you can to try to link it together to prove your case. Um, and, you know, we're very cautious. Uh, we're very proud of our record at being successful in appeal hearings and arbitration hearings. And, you know, we're not going to bring a case forward if the evidence is not strong. But, you know, fortunately, um, you know, given how kind of passionate people are in my office about this topic, but also how good they are at their jobs, uh, our track record has been pretty good at being able to, uh, if we take a case on and dive into it, we've been able to uh, uh, have a pretty high rate of success in our investigations. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of resources there, which is really encouraging for someone who knew nothing about those things until you just gave gave me the whole rundown. Throwing it to Shanna, she was involved with you at the Partnership for Clean Competition conference. What what questions would you ask him about the PCC and their involvement with the PCC, Shanna? Um, I would say that, well, one, walking away from that conference, I think that unanimously we learned the most from you, John, and what you guys are doing at the MLB. How do you think has the culture evolved in the last 10 to 12 years since all of this has happened and you guys have had more of a robust drug testing protocol? Uh, excellent question. Uh, I'm something I'm happy to talk about because it's it's been a great experience kind of seeing the shift. Um, you know, one, you know, Chris, you mentioned how we have some, you know, a lot of resources and a lot of good people. Um, you know, we also have great leadership on our end. And under former Commissioner Selig, who felt incredibly passionate about this topic and doing everything that he can to try to, you know, clean up our game and, and keep PEDs and other banned substances out of the game. Uh, but then about uh, five years ago or so, uh, we he stepped down as commissioner and we have a new commissioner, Rob Manfred, who um, I would say with confidence that he probably is the not only is he an expert on performance enhancing drugs and testing because he was uh, very highly involved in getting our programs off the ground in the early 2000s. Uh, but he really is, you know, as a commissioner of baseball, he remains to be just a, a subject matter expert and and one that continues to give us the resources and the ability to do our jobs to the extent possible. You know, drug testing, running an anti-doping program, you know, running an investigation are incredibly expensive endeavors. And fortunately, uh, we just are provided with those resources and that's, you know, people, time and money uh, to get the job done. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're fortunate about that. And, you know, other entities may not be in the same position. So that can't go unnoticed that, you know, our, uh, we are given those resources and that essentially comes from the top because um, they essentially sign off on our budgets and things like that. But, you know, Shanna, to answer your question, you know, I, I do think having kind of that main, you know, that constant uh, level of integrity in our game from the top down um, and wanting to make sure that we continue to press and continue to get better over the last 10 to 12 years has been important. Um, and so, you know, this issue, you know, continues to remain a top priority, regardless of all the other things that are going on or, or that we have on our plates. But the, the most exciting thing from my perspective, the, the change that we've experienced has been really the shift in kind of the, the, the athlete focus. Um, you know, our players are unionized. And, you know, before my time in the late 90s, early 2000s, you didn't see a lot of players speaking out. Um, and you certainly didn't, you know, see them speaking publicly about topics like this. But, you know, a day does not go by where, 
you can't see, you know, not just a regular kind of, you know, fringe player, but all-star caliber baseball players speaking out and saying that, you know, they want to have the strongest drug testing program in place. They are, you know, you know, want to, you know, step up and continue to get better because they want to have a clean game. They want to compete on a level playing field. And that's just incredibly encouraging. Um, but as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, you know, we can't make any change without their agreements. And, you know, maybe, you know, 15, 20 years ago, getting drug testing in place, getting that negotiated and, and adopting those rules and policies may have been a difficult endeavor. Well, we're just very much aligned nowadays with our players union. We have a great relationship with them on this topic. Um, and I work very closely and, and speak to them on a daily basis to try to make our policies as strong as possible. And while we continue to make I, suggest ideas, while we continue to make proposals to say, hey, what if we did this? Or how about we examine you know, this testing method or, or maybe investigate this option to make our programs even better. We also hear things from the other side of the table. And, um, you know, some of the best aspects of our drug testing policies came from the players themselves. Um, you know, uh, drug testing, uh, as um, you may know, um, is, is, is it's certainly an inconvenience. It's invasive. You know, whether you're sticking a needle in somebody's arm or arm. someone's watching you, you know, provide a urine sample. Right. It's, you know, not a, you know, a great experience, but that's what's necessary to, to, to really uphold a clean game. Um, our players want more and more testing. They feel that that's an important aspect of our program. Um, and in the last round of collective bargaining in 2016, they proposed even more testing. So it's just incredibly encouraging to hear that from our athletes. I mean, this is a topic I hope you can tell is I'm very passionate about, but it just makes it much easier to implement change and continue to enforce the policy and make it better if you have the athletes, the athlete group and the representatives, um, you know, on board with you. And that's definitely been the case over the last five to 10 years. I know. I feel like most clean athletes, one, don't find it that big of a deal and they actually welcome more testing. And again, back to the PCC, I know one of the topics on the panel was how do we uh, I mean, implement collective bargaining in the Olympic sports. How would you even begin to, I mean, we have different sponsors, like it's different sports in general. So how would you even go about something like that? Yeah, I mean, actually kind of getting that f formal process in place, I mean, would be uh, a lengthy conversation and something that, you know, would require not just kind of the management entity, um, there would have to be an employer-employee relationship and there would have to be an actual players union involved that being said it's not that challenging in my view in creating a landscape in the olympic world where the athletes themselves or representatives on behalf of the athletes are involved in the process um, and i've said it and my boss has said it uh, multiple times either at the pcc conference or publicly that our policies our anti-doping programs are better and more effective because they involve the views and the feedback of the athletes. Um, you know, we um, are very encouraged and, and frankly, we're in a hard place when an, uh, our players say we want more testing or we want better testing or whatever the case might be. You know, we're going to agree to that because we can tell one, it's important to them. And two, I mean, they're the ones that are playing on the field and those are the ones that are most greatly impacted by it. So, um, you know, setting up a structure um, you know, at least in our sport, you know, it works incredibly well. And I would have to imagine that, you know, whatever the governing body is, uh, whether it's listening to, negotiating with, or working hand in hand with the athlete groups, 
Um, that's not that challenging to set up, and it's just really a willingness on the part of the governing body to want to engage on that front. Major League Baseball is taking a leading role with the PCC in organizing and funding it and leading it. What? Why? What is that? How did that start? Yeah, um, good question. You know, that is um, something that, you know, about 10 years ago in 2008, um, the now commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, um, and his colleagues at the National Football League, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, and the U.S. Olympic Committee started discussions to talk about, um, you know, ways that they could work together to improve the anti-doping landscape. Um, one aspect that was, you know, in need of improvement was the ability of um, those groups to conduct research, to, to get better. Um, any type of research, particularly scientific research, is incredibly expensive to conduct. And, um, you know, it, on the anti-doping front, findings of research can benefit everyone. So the thought was, and, and it's worked incredibly well, is rather than Major League Baseball you know, applying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest in research and conduct that research and then either keeping it for themselves or hopefully sharing it with others. Why don't we pool our money together with USADA, USOC and the NFL um, into a larger fund to not only conduct more research, but to conduct better research. So those four entities came together as the board of governors. Uh, we established a scientific advisory board, which essentially brought together the best of the best on the scientific front to advise that board on what type of research should be conducted. And, and, and really, it's been off of the races ever since. Um, you know, the PCC scientific group meets multiple times a year. They make recommendations to the board of governors, who also meets multiple times a year. Um, and for the most part, the board of governors defers to the scientific board on what should and should not be, re uh, should not be funded. Um, and since that time, I mean, Michael Perlmutter can tell you better than I can, but millions of dollars over the last decade have been funded into anti-doping research. And it doesn't just benefit Major League Baseball. It benefits all those domestic entities that I just mentioned. But the PCC has really become an international entity where they're not only funding uh, research from international labs and international scientists, but they're also uh, the research that's conducted here in North America is shared with the world. Um, and it's just it's a collective effort where we're putting our minds and our bank accounts together uh, to continue to raise the bar on the anti-doping front. And, and I couldn't be more proud to be involved. I'm just I'm thrilled um, now over time. I've become more and more uh, worked more closely with Michael, worked more and more involved with the uh, we have the other board of governors. Um, when Commissioner Manfred became commissioner, uh, he handed the baton to Dan Halem, who's our chief legal officer, who I've worked uh, very closely with over the last 10 to 12 years on everything related to drug testing and anti-doping. He is the chairman of the PCC Board of Governors now, um, and it's, that just has provided me with an opportunity to work with the other Board of Governors, Travis Tiger, Delpha Birch, and, and Chris McCleary, and just have, you know, just an involvement in an organization that um, not only do I think is really important, it's, it's really been effective at improving the overall landscape through research, but also putting on High quality, uh, high quality conferences like the one we just had in London. So, it also serves as a way to collaborate with those other leagues. What have you learned in collaborating with the other major sports leagues, in particular, but even USADA, through the PCC about how MLB can improve its its programming? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's it's been a great experience because, you know, I'm not one for saying our program's better than others or, you know, uh, let's let's um, kind of rank who's more effective or whatever the case might be. You know, everyone involved in the PCC, those organizations you just met, they all want a clean game. They all want to implement and administer effective anti-doping programs. And, you know, I can I can assure you that they all do. Uh, and they're they're all very good at what they do. But yet we all face different types of challenges. You know, the issues that are faced within Major League Baseball, where our players play 162 baseball games in 183 days. And that doesn't even include the postseason, the World Series or spring training. Um, they're playing pretty much every single day. You know, you compare that to the challenges that exist in, say, an endurance sport where they're only competing a couple times a year. You know, while at, at its core, you know, you want to have a clean sport, you want to have a clean game, and you want to implement rules and policies that will uphold that, you know, the challenges are, are quite a bit different. Um, so, you know, with that, you know, we want to share our experiences with those other entities. We have a great relationship with the NFL and USADA and the USOC and the other organizations like the PGA Tour that have uh, stepped up and, and funded and supported the PCC. Um, and while some of those challenges are different, I think we can teach and educate others on, on what we've been through and then vice versa. We can learn a lot from them. And so, you know, although kind of the PCC is a research organization at its core, just the ability to get together with these folks. I mean, people that are really good at their jobs are really outspoken, are really passionate about this topic. It'll, it just provides us with a platform and an opportunity to work really closely with them. And, you know, that's just spawned other uh, type of opportunities. You know, we just published a consensus statement with representatives from USADA and, and others on the importance of third-party certification of dietary supplements. Um, that was published about a week ago and really kind of um, created a consensus amongst our organizations on what should be uh, a part of a third-party uh, certification entity like the ones we use and now that the ones that uh, NSF has uh, publicly supported. Um, and, uh, you know, we've also been involved, it's crazy to say, but um, at one of those meetings that we conducted with USADA and others, um, we were very frustrated with the fact that both USADA and MLB are using a collection kit, a sample collection kit that was compromised in the Russia situation, and no other company stepped up to create a better version or one that provides more confidence and is more uh, secure. So over the last 18 months, um, USADA and MLB have worked very hard at creating a new option for athletes that will give them the confidence that when they provide a sample, uh, it will be secured and locked and will not be compromised uh, from the time of collection to the time that is provided to the laboratory. Um, we continue to press on that issue. Um, we've created a third-party entity that's going to be a fully functioning separate company, uh, but that product is going to be available in the next couple of months, and we're just thrilled that we were able to you know, lend a hand and, and, and add some assistance and some support in that area of anti-doping that, frankly, uh, was was pretty poorly compromised or pretty severely compromised rather in the whole Russia situation. Going back to the players for a second, what things do you you have in place to get information from the players? And if, whether it be tips on specific players or tips on cutting edge drugs that might be at the edge of testing programming or protocols. How are you having that dialogue and, and then protecting those who might be sharing that information? Sure. Well, we have a reporting hotline in, in baseball. It's confidential. 
Uh, it actually, there's information that's disclosed directly to that Department of Investigations that I previously mentioned. Um, and so there is that out there. Um, you know, we also have great relationships with our club personnel. Um, you know, another aspect of the job for me is to kind of be the point of contact for our club athletic trainers, team doctors, strength and conditioning coaches, uh, performance directors, and registered dietitians. And, you know, while I'm based in New York City um, and, you know, don't have a lot of day-to-day -day contact with the players themselves, um, my friends and colleagues that are actually employed by our teams and are in the clubhouses have a very close relationship with those players. So, you know, disclosure and reporting and all of those things, it all is connected to trust. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really great to see of how great of a relationship and a close relationship some of those individuals have with the players themselves. So, you know, it is one where in a team sport, it is challenging to speak out on behalf of a player. But, you know, if that was going to be done, I mean, they're, um, you know, we want to make sure that we have an inclusive environment, not just on the PED front, but on, on all fronts, that players are willing to speak out and, and can can speak up if they feel it's important or that if they have information that's out there. Um, but beyond that, um, you know, beyond the reporting hotline that we have in place for players, uh, we also have a number of disclosure policies in place throughout baseball that um, to take it one step further than some of the even other professional sports that are out there, our club employees, all those individuals that I just mentioned, but also security personnel, general managers, others, they have an obligation to report information to, to our office. Um, I'm one of the point people for that information, and our investigators are a point person for, for that information. And any evidence whatsoever of performance-enhancing drug use or recreational drug use that needs to be reported upon receipt. And then at the end of each year, we actually require um, our club employees to sign essentially an affidavit saying that they have reported all information that they have that may be potential violations of our policy. And to come full circle, that was one of the strong recommendations that came from George Mitchell to make sure that if there is information out there, no one's sitting on it and that the people that need to know this information, be it you know the people at the league office so we can investigate it, that information has to be disclosed and reported. Signing an affidavit is pretty serious. What it, in, in layman's terms, what does that mean if they were lying there? Yeah, I think it's safe to say, I mean, there are penalties if you are not truthful. Um, you know, there is an obligation and we follow up if those, um, we, we call them certifications of disclosure, are not submitted. Um, and I would say that, you know, there would be, there would be, repercussions if, if someone either was not truthful about that information or failed to, to submit their certification on an annual basis. Let's talk for a second about punishment in the event that someone is busted for PEDs. How has that evolved with Major League Baseball? Uh, it's, it's evolved pretty significantly. You know, uh, in addition to all those updates and changes that we talked about on testing frequency and banned substance list and things like that, um, you know, our um, sanction kind of schedule has, has increased pretty significantly since the release of the Mitchell Report. You know, the very first version of the joint drug program, and I call it joint, that's the official term, but also that means that MLB and MLBPA are jointly negotiating this, are jointly working together on this. Um, you know, the suspensions were, were pretty low, um, you know, whether they were associated with fines or they were associated with short uh, game suspensions. You know, right now, uh, a first-time violation of our policy requires a player to miss half a season. Um, that's 80 games. 
That's 80 games in a row consecutive. Um, and then there are secondary sanctions uh, beyond just the suspension itself. All of our penalties are without pay. So if you know, you're making $10 million a year, a first-time violation of our policy will result in $5 million loss of pay. Uh, we will publicly announce you. We will publicly announce the substance that you test positive for. And then there are secondary sanctions that, again, came from the players group. Uh, any player that's suspended is ineligible to be selected for or participate in the All-Star Game, which is an important event for our players. And in my view, the most important secondary sanction that we have in place is in the season where you're suspended, even if you're reinstated and back from that suspension, if your team makes the playoffs or the World Series, you cannot participate. We don't want players that are suspended, all, all of us, meaning the league, the union, and, uh, and other players, did not want players who were suspended for PED use to be impacting games when they matter the most, which is the postseason. So all of that combined creates a pretty stringent uh, sanction schedule. Um, that's just for PEDs. Um, but you know, I know that this was uh, one thing that came up at the PCC conference while we take a very harsh approach or stringent approach to PED violations, um, we take a different approach with other classification of substances like recreational drugs or drugs of abuse. Um, and while there can ultimately be sanctions down the road for those that class of substances, we do separate that out. And before even getting into the world of discipline or considering the world of discipline, uh, we take a clinical treatment-based approach with our players first uh, to try to get them the help that they need. And it's only if they refuse or fail to participate in those treatment recommendations that we even get into the possibility of discipline. Um, back to the word trust that you used. I know that word came up a lot at the conference. And there's a lot of distrust amongst the Olympic movement. So how have you seen, because I wouldn't say it's a harsh program. I think it's a very stringent program and I wish the Olympic movement would adopt more of this. How have you seen the trust of the players and the trust of the uh, the public evolve in the last 10 years because of everything you all have in place? Well, I think, um, you know, the, the players see it firsthand because, you know, we have an obligation to come to the table with them and negotiate with them. And I think, you know, while there may have been that mistrust back in the day, um, I think over time, I think we've proven that you know, we want this policy in place for the right reasons. Um, we take a rational approach to a lot of things, uh, which I'm quite proud of. Um, you're not going to gain anything if you try to pull a fast one on the players group or try to be too heavy handed or aggressive. Uh, you have to build and gain that trust. And I think we've worked very hard over the last day, decade, not just on the PED front, but on all fronts to show that, you know, we are in this for the right reasons and that, you know, we are transparent and, and all those things that are important. Um, you know, by involving them in that process, though, I mean, it essentially requires you to have, whether it's a level of trust or a level of involvement or just level of the ability to work together on things, you know, we're kind of forced into that position, which is a good thing. Um, and But, you know, it's one where you know, we have taken very rational approaches to things. You know, I mentioned the drugs of abuse. You know, we continue to, to maintain that view. And then some other things, just some kind of uh, uh, common sense type things where, for example, you know, if an athlete tests positive for clenbuterol because he was down in Mexico eating meat, is that really the player you want to suspend? Um, you know, if a, um, you know, player, um, you know, has an incredibly low, um, you know, 
positive test for something called Osterine, which is a SARM, which can be, you know, found in, in a number of, you know, dietary supplements at incredibly low levels. Um, you know, how, how low of a result are we going to push forward on the disciplinary front? So all of those things, you know, while we do take a heavy handed approach to PED violations where there's intentional or negligent use, um, I think, you know, kind of counterbalancing that or balancing that out with rational approaches to more challenging topics has really built up that trust, not only with the players themselves, but also with their representatives, which is the players union. Um, and so, you know, that's just one where, you know, so they see it firsthand, um, a kind of the, the approach that we take and, and, you know, not only how rational I think we, that we are, but also how important this topic is for us and how much time and, and dedication we put towards it. And to your question on the public, you know, this was, um, you know, take yourself back to the early 2000s. I mean, every story seemingly that was written about baseball was was written in a negative light, um, you know, about, you know, potential, you know, PED violations, the Belco investigation, as Chris mentioned early on. Um, you know, we have moved on from that. I mean, while we still have violations of our policy from time to time, um, you know, while there still are, you know, critical stories written about baseball, for the most part, I think the media and the public views Major League Baseball's program as, as a pretty solid one and one that has evolved over time and has really improved. And, you know, while you can't weed out all cheating, you can't weed out all PED use, um, you know, if we did do that, I probably wouldn't have a job. Um, but, you know, it's one where I think, you know, our program is stringent enough where if use is going on, you're going to be caught. And, you know, when you are caught, um, sanctions are going to be swiftly imposed. We're going to publicly announce everything associated with that sanction. Uh, and that's the way to kind of build up, you know, the, the public trust. Um, you know, we have a really exciting group of young players in our game now. You know, they're, you know, the best baseball players in the world. And they're just, they're incredibly um, talented. They're incredibly successful. It's really great to see as a fan of the game that, you know, the media coverage and, and the public view is on, it's focused on the game and the high quality of, of the play, as opposed to what may or may not be going on off, off the field. I think part of the proof is in the performing. I remember in the late 90s, the question was, is the ball juiced? And we found out it was the players. Now we're talking about this pitching era, which tells me that the balance has shifted back the other way to fair play, which is exciting. So that's where we want to be. And, uh, you know, I, again, while you, I mean, we, you still have, you know, suspensions from time to time, um, you know, for the most part, you know, we have a lot of confidence that our game is being played fairly and um, in the right way. So what is the cutting edge of cheating that you've identified? You know, where are players pushing the edge or, you know, cause the, there's a popular, vernacular within fans that the cheaters are always a, one step ahead of the testing. So if you were to hypothesize about where the, the new frontier is to go catch, what would that be? Well, I think there's some truth to that statement, unfortunately, and that's where we have to work very hard to try to, you know, keep pace or stay in front of, of the cheaters and those that advise the cheaters. Um, you know, we have had experiences over the last decade where, a new substance is out there that we didn't know much about. Um, you know, fortunately, I think through our annual review process, you know, we have the opportunity if there is a novel substance or a new substance out there, um, we have the ability to add it, um, you know, as soon as we become aware of it and start testing for it, if there is a test that, that's out there. 
um, with new substances in order to catch those cheaters. You know, you do need to make sure that your science is, is world class. And I think through the laboratories that we use um, and also groups like the PCC, we, we're doing pretty much everything we can to being proactive and, and being, you know, as, as aggressive as we can on, on that front. But, you know, over the last decade, I mean, we've been out in front of issues to um, some of them have been proactive. Some of them have been reactive. You know, uh, you know, after the Mitchell report, there was a lot of focus on human growth hormone, HGH used for recovery, which would be pretty applicable to the injuries in baseball or the long season in baseball. Um, we were the first pro league to adopt the blood test for human growth hormone once it became available. But frankly, that was a bit reactive because the test wasn't ready yet. Um, so while we had the ability prior to that to investigate use on a non-analytical basis, we couldn't start testing for that substance until it was until our labs had the ability to do so. Uh, but, you know, through our annual review process, we had banned substances just about every year um, where, you know, either a newer version of an old school steroid or a, you know, a new version of one of the more kind of sophisticated substances becomes known or becomes out there. Um, so, you know, we do stay in front of the curve with respect to that. But, you know, I think the best example of where we learned about new things being used was in that biogenesis investigation that I previously mentioned. You know, we had uh, we were pretty much testing for any antibiotic, every anabolic steroid that's out there, or at least everyone that's known. Uh, we were testing for human growth hormone through HGA or through, through blood testing, rather. Uh, but in our investigation into biogenesis and other clinics, we did become aware that things called growth hormone releasing peptides were being used. And essentially they do the same thing as human growth hormone, but are many of them are taken orally or in a way that's just not as invasive as human, human growth hormones. So we had to make sure that we, if those things are being used for reasons that could impact the play on the field or could affect the integrity of our game, we had to make sure that we add those to our band list and start testing for them as soon as possible. And we did. Uh, and that's a situation where, again, we couldn't add that without getting the players' union's um, agreement on it. But that was a pretty easy negotiation to have because we explained to them what this was. They understood that it was important to put them on the ban list. And we, we, we had it banned prior to the next season. Uh, but that classification of substances is a good example where there isn't just one peptide. Um, there's many, many of them, dozens or hundreds, frankly. And, you know, they can be nuanced. They can be manipulated. And so to try to stay in front of the curve, to continue to learn through research and otherwise, to just make sure that we're capturing everything that we can from a banned substance perspective, it is a challenge. It's a little bit of an uphill battle, but I do think we've aligned ourselves and, and have uh, you know, the right people on staff to allow us to, to be as proactive as we possibly can. So beyond staying ahead of the curve on new substances, as you look to the future, what do you want to see as... Major League Baseball continues to improve its program? Well, I think we've landed in a really strong place um, at the Major League level. Um, I mean, that is kind of our gold standard program, the one that we are the most proud of. Um, we do continue to look at that on an annual basis, and, and we, will, we have no intention of stopping to do that. Um, so you never know what the next challenge is going to be, uh, but we are, uh, I do feel like we're in a pretty strong place. Um, you know, the one area that I would like to see change, you know, beyond the major league program, which is that, you know, the 30 major league clubs that receives the most media attention, we have a pretty significant minor league program as well. Um, there are about 7,500 minor league players throughout um, North and South America, 
at any given moment. Uh, and that program is frankly our biggest drug testing policy. Uh, we conduct a lot of tests under that as well. And, and, and the policy is pretty much written in the same way as the, as the major league program is. But one challenge that is kind of near and dear to my heart and we're working really hard to see change is down in Latin America where baseball is the focus and many of the top athletes coming out of the Dominican Republic and Venezuela um, are really, um, you know, trying to become professional athletes at, at all costs, trying to become professional baseball players at all costs. And that creates a framework or a landscape where there's high risk, high reward, right? Where these young athletes are coming out of a very poor country. They want to do everything possible to try to take care of themselves to become successful, but also take care of their families. And that, that combined with the fact that anabolic steroids, the old school type, um, are pretty easily accessible and available in that country. So while we've made some huge strides there, uh, we do a ton of education and awareness programs. We do a bunch of tests and we have an entirely full, fully functioning office down in the Dominican Republic that spends a lot of its time focused on this issue. Uh, we're not going to see real change until the government of the Dominican Republic in similar areas essentially makes anabolic steroids illegal. Um, so, you know, we can do our part and we'll continue to do our part, but knowing that there's any use of, of banned substances like that with young athletes, meaning kids under the age of 16, um, you know, that's just heartbreaking from my, uh, perspective and something that I'd really like to see change. And while I think major league baseball has an obligation to a certain extent to do what we can to try to fix that landscape, uh, it's only going to be kind of at the government level that we're going to be able to really make a significant dent in that issue. Well, John, we've taken too much of your time already. Your passion for this topic is evident, and it's really encouraging as a fan. And I think there are notes that need to be taken by the USOC and the International Olympic Committee and others in the Olympic movement to, to take a similar stance. So we really, really appreciate the time. Thanks yeah, thank you, John. Santa. Good chatting with you. Have a good day. There you go, John Coyles, everyone. Thanks to him and thanks to Shannon for joining me in this discussion. Is really, as I mentioned, a pleasant surprise to see the depth of work and the commitment that Major League Baseball has put on clean sport in that sport. So hopefully you were encouraged listening to it. And for those who might have been jaded about baseball, maybe your mind is changed about what what they're doing and how clean that sport might be. So. Thanks to John for giving us all the details on that. It's exciting to see a sport like baseball take the lead, and I would love to see personally others follow their example. I know the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, and other major sports leagues in the U.S. are doing their best, but it seems like Major League Baseball is definitely taking leadership there, so I would like to see more of the tasks that they're doing translate to those other leagues. We will see how that plays out. Thanks to John again, and thanks to you all for listening. As always, you can check us out at cleansport.org or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at cleansportco. That's cleansportco if you'd like to stay up to speed on all things about the Clean Sport Collective. Otherwise, until next time, we'll talk to you soon.